please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 4. We will be reading together this morning verses 5 through 29. That's the Gospel according to John chapter 4, 5 through 29, and you can find that passage on page 1044 in your pew Bibles. Just as a, a bit of housekeeping here, I wanted to, to take a moment to uh, address something in, in, in evangelism in the church, and I thought John 4 was a good place to go. Uh, next week we will be returning to our uh, series on the Gospel according to Mark. So if you're wondering if I would ever get back to the Gospel according to Mark, Lord willing, I would be headed back there uh, next week in chapter 3. So. But this morning we're looking at John 4, and one of the things that we often find in these gospel narratives is the fact or the truth that one of the things that the brilliant light of the gospel of Jesus Christ does is continue to blind those who have been hardened against it. We talk about it all the time. It's sort of a twofold work. It brings mercy to one by the grace of God, and it certainly brings the justice of Almighty God to another. And I'd like for us to consider that light this morning, the light of revelation. And in doing that, I would like for us to look at something that I feel all too often in our own day is overlooked and perhaps even ignored altogether. That is the way in which Jesus Christ mercifully revealed himself, the light of the world, to this dark, dead world, which of course was and is reeling from the effects of the fall. Beloved, I think it's critical in our pursuit of the precious, life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ to see to it that our thinking centers on the actual revelation of Jesus Christ to and not simply upon the many, many misrepresentations that have been handed in the church now for centuries. Jesus Christ revealed himself specifically. He did not leave it for you and I to guess as to who and what he is, and what specifically he taught regarding something so wonderful as our redemption in Him. We see Him being revealed throughout the entirety of Scripture. We see it first in the shadows of the law and the prophets. We see it through the actual incarnation, the life, death, resurrection, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this world. God revealed in flesh. Jesus revealed Himself to the world, and in so doing, He rent the darkness asunder forever with a piercing, glorious, and magnificent light. And so I think it's well worth our time to sort of pause and consider this specific revealed light that has pierced the darkness for all eternity. This morning, I want to talk with you about the central importance that the Scriptures place upon us, that is upon you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, necessarily 
being what Scripture calls light in the midst of darkness. We're called to that. We hear that description often. But the people of God are to be, and in fact are, light. And it's, of course, speaking of those who have tasted the wonderful grace of Almighty God, those who have truly become witnesses to the great and glorious light of the gospel, and who ought to be, by nature of their union with Jesus Christ, joyfully pointing others to the light. When we have seen the light, we, like Moses, who you will remember had to veil the light of revelation of the glory of God, that was being reflected from his face, he had to veil it. We, by nature of our being recipients of the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ, ought to be reflecting that light as well in our lives. We are called to reflect the glorious light of the revelation. The light of the revelation of Jesus does not ever shine forth because of us or because of our ability to just dig down deep and serve as proper and right reflectors. We do not shine forth the light of the gospel out of compulsion or out of our own vain attempts at earning God's favor, but out of a supernatural compassion for those who, like us, have lived in utter devastating darkness. Now the passage that we're going to focus on this morning is not necessarily where we find this exact terminology or this exact phrase in Scripture, though that I think we will see that it very clearly applies to this principle. John chapter 4, which we're going to be looking at here in just a moment, never mentions these exact words, light and darkness, in this way. However, in this passage, I want to tell you, we do see this concept lived out in what can only be called a radical fashion. In today's passage, we see the light himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, step into the midst of utter darkness, and he mercifully leaves that place much, much brighter than he found it. See it in this passage, if you will. We're going to see and consider evangelism according to Jesus Christ himself. And I think it's a very timely and worthwhile endeavor for us to sort of just take a break and look at the way that Jesus revealed himself in glory to this world. Since our purpose is wrapped up in it. In our day, evangelism takes many, many different shapes and forms within the church. It seems that the church at large has many different takes on how it is that you and I are to best reach out to those around us and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as always, is my hope of I hope to drive your thinking not so much to the actual practice of evangelism itself as to the motives that ought to be driving us to genuine evangelism in the first place. 
think that we've already witnessed and indeed we are living amid what it looks like when the church in large measure places so much of its focus on the particular methodology in evangelism. So much so that it's forgotten the motive forever engaging. So it's really no surprise that we see the church being so caught up in forms over and above the substance standing behind them. Even in this critical area of the Christian life. Right? I don't know this is a problem. Right? I don't think this is up to debate. We have in the church a wide variance when it comes to evangelism. Some believe that evangelism happens only large scale through passionate preaching during things like revivals or other massive large-scale events where we might see thousands coming forward and answering an older call in order to repent and believe. At the other end of the spectrum, we see those who believe and teach that genuine evangelism only happens through deep personal relationship-building models. And through the building up of those relationships, one can then lovingly lead those around them to the Lord. Still others will claim that proper evangelism happens only through engaging one's mind, getting one to ponder philosophical questions pertaining to being and causation and eternity and life and death. This morning, I do not want to spend our time in this wonderful passage of sacred scripture figuring out which methodology is the most correct or even the most effective. There are at least shreds of truth in all of them. I do not believe, though, that this is what this picture we have here in the Gospel according to John chapter 4 is. I think that when we see what our Lord is actually doing here, which we will see as evangelism, the proper question is, again, not what particular methodology does Jesus employ to bring this woman to himself, to open her eyes to who she truly is and who he truly is. But rather, why is Jesus Christ even spending any of his time with this dreadful, sinful woman? What implications does this act of merciful condescension on the, on the part of our Lord have for sinners like you and like me. Like those that we find ourselves in the midst of. So it's with all that being said, I'd like for you to follow along now. It's, it's a bit of a, a longer passage than we normally deal with, but I want you to follow along as I read through John chapter 4. Again, I will start with verse 5 and read through verse 29. Hear not a word of all. Speaking of Jesus. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to him, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan 
woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. You would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself? as well as his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw Jesus said to him, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. You have had five husbands. The one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now it is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit truth. The Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I will speak to you. At this point, his disciples came and marveled at the talk of the woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Why are you talking with her? The woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see the man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and gave him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful that you opened that word to us through the power of your spirit. We certainly pray for the power of that spirit this morning. Give us understanding into these things. That we may live more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find Jesus here in this narrative. After having learned of the Pharisees' knowledge that he was actually making and baptizing more disciples than John was, deciding that he was going to move on from Judea in the south and begin the journey up towards Galilee, which was in the north. He was going to do it passing directly through Samaria, which stood between the two. 
Now, it's important to note that the Jewish people absolutely despised the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a race of people who were known by the Jewish people as being a little less than the scum of the people that had been gathered from among many foreigners. And you probably remember the history. We read it not that long ago as we made our way through the Old Testament together during worship. And if you remember, after King Solomon, Israel became divided as ten of the tribes came under King Jeroboam. And that enmity was taken to another level as those ten tribes were then carried off by the Assyrians. And the Jews of Samaria began to mingle and to intermarry with those that the king of the Assyrians had sent to Samaria from Babylon and from the other conquered nations. As Israel frequently did, they began to take on even some of the detestable worship practices of the pagan nations with whom they were intermarrying with. The Jews of Jesus' day believed that the Samaritans had corrupted the true worship of Almighty God through their wicked, idolatrous ceremonies, especially through the building of their own temple upon Mount Gerizim, rather than making the trek for worship to the temple of Jerusalem. So the Jewish people detested the Samaritan. And as a matter of practice, they would go very, very far out of their way to be away from them. And of course, they would absolutely never have any discourse with the Samaritan whatsoever. They would journey all the way around Samaria just to avoid having any contact with the Samaritan people. They were a mixed multitude. They were hated. They were considered by most of the Jewish people to be less than scum. The law and its precious promises, the national pride of Israel, were not for the Samaritans, according to the Jewish people. And so it is with full knowledge of all of this, full understanding of Israel's treasured history, we find Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, deciding that he was going to break from tradition and head straight through Samaria on his way up to Galilee. does not seem to be a likely place to find Jesus so early in his ministry. But this is exactly where Jesus must be doing the will of the Father. So Jesus leaves aside those years of enmity, and he decides to take a path to Galilee that leads him directly through the heart of Samaria, where he will engage, in fact, he's going there to engage, a known, sinful, detestable Samaritan in conversation. Of course, we're told in the narrative that Jesus finds himself to be tired and weary by his journey, and so he decides to get a little more, even more unthinkable. He decides to stop and to take his rest in this forsaken land in order to recover. We're told he's in the sound of the, the town of Sychar. And he comes upon a well and he stops to sit for a while and to rest his weary feet. And it's here 
that we meet for the first time the real reason for Jesus' visit to this forsaken land. Scripture does not even give us the name of this woman. We know her only as a Samaritan woman. She comes to the well alone in the heat of the day to draw for herself some fresh water, and she finds this Jewish man sitting there next to the well. Very soon, learn of the tarnished and disreputable character of this woman, but even putting that aside for a moment, you can just imagine what had to be racing through this poor, thirsty woman's mind as she approached this well on what would become, in a very real sense, the first day of the rest of her life. What does this Jewish man want with our world? Why is he here? Why is he taking rest here? I wonder if he means me harm. Surely he hates me. As she gets closer to the well and to Jesus himself, she gets another shot. Jesus speaks directly to her. He addresses her. Perhaps even more surprising, he asks her if, he, if she could give him something to drink. I want you to think for a moment about what's going on here. We're told the disciples have providentially gone away to find food. So this is just the Lord of all heaven and earth and this wretched, sinful woman together at this well. Think of what's going on here. She stands before the judge of heaven and earth. And the woman is clearly shocked by his presence. She asks him in verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? She's not only a Samaritan, she's a woman. And in this particular culture, even and even worse, one that we see that, that's just not done in this particular culture. And what's even worse is we see she's not just a woman. She's a woman of suspect character. She has had five husbands, and the man she's currently with is not her husband. The Jewish culture of this time would find this whole scene to be an absolute abhorrent disgrace. Can you imagine what the Pharisees would have said? If they could have ever let their righteousness slip enough to enter the land of Samaria? This woman goes on to point out to Jesus that he doesn't even have something with him from which he could feasibly drink from. Certainly, this Jewish man would not stoop so low as to put his lips on the same vessel as her own defiled lips had touched every single day from the world's house. So Jesus responds by offering her living water, water which he says will quench her thirst forever. Water which will sustain not simply her body and her health, her vitality, but her soul. Of course, the woman is drawn in. She'd like to know more about this living water that Jesus is speaking of. And so she asks him for this living water so that she herself will no longer thirst and it's here that we see Jesus Christ do something. He puts his finger on the deepest, most pressing problem and trouble in this woman's troubled life. He 
puts his finger directly upon her sin. And in so doing, he brings the condition of this woman's heart out into the open. From the cover of darkness to the glorious light of day. And we see something. In order to drink and be refreshed by the living water of the gospel, one first must know the cause of their own dreadful lives. So Jesus opens her eyes to that cause. He doesn't skate around it. He doesn't say, oh, this is going to be an awkward conversation. He says, oh, call your husband. If you're like me in your mind's eye, you can see the, the reaction that had to be upon this woman's face as Jesus makes what, on the surface at least, appears to be a simple request. He tells her to go and call her husband. It's too good not to share. He's going to give it to her husband as well. I would imagine the woman's countenance had to have dropped before Jesus as she answered that indeed she had no husband. All the while knowing the truth of her own life, being suddenly aware of her own shame. Her sin is before her now. You see that. She could now see clearly what she must be in the eyes of this strange Jewish man. There was nowhere for her to hide. The truth was out in the open. It was immediately exposed and she would have to face the fact that this truly is what she was. There's no getting around it, is there? She was filthy. There's no, there's going to be no hiding behind a mask of piety. Do you recognize that she was looking for that? I mean, pretty quickly she got real holy and philosophical. She got real theological about worship. Right? It was a smokescreen. She was masking what she knew to be true about herself. Beloved, I trust that you can relate to that. Because we do this, don't we? She was a Samaritan living in a way that I'm sure even the Samaritans in her own culture would not deem to be accepted. But here she was, with her sin out in the open, laid bare before Jesus, and he tells her exactly what her life is all about. He lists out for her the sin of her life. And she responds by saying that she perceives this man's a prophet. She does what so many of us do when our sin is exposed. We get real religious. Can you relate to that? Her sin has been exposed, so it's time to get theological and to let this man know that she was not simply just ignorant of God, Grasping for something to cover her shame, her indecency. And so she asks Jesus a question about the nature of true worship and where it is really to take place, here in Samaria or where the Jews say is right. 
Jesus goes on, despite her foolishness, to lovingly explain to this sinful woman the very nature of worship. How loving is Jesus Christ? And then something amazing happened. Here for the first time in John's Gospel, we see Jesus Christ announcing a revelation of the greatest magnitude. And the only audience is this sinful woman about who it is that truly speaks to her. Right? There's no one else there. This is Jesus and this woman, and he is about to give the announcement of announcements to this sinful woman. It's no small announcement. This strange scene in a detested land with this inconsequential sinful woman is really and truly the moment all of the Jewish people, including some of the Samaritans, obviously, she mentions it, were supposed to have been waiting for, longing for, looking for the arrival of Almighty God's promised Messiah, Redeemer. And here by this well in this defiled land, a land detested by the Jews, this exposed sinful woman Ask Jesus the question of all questions. And he mercifully answers them. She says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to tell us all these things. And again, Jesus gets directly to the point. He looks at her and he says, I who speak with you. Think about the magnitude of this moment in the history of this earth, right? This is not the scene we would expect. This is not where we would expect King Jesus, King of the Jews, to make this announcement that he indeed is the Messiah that the world has been waiting for. And this pitiable woman hears the voice of God by the grace of Almighty She's given thanks, and she believes. Her darkened, fallen eyes are open to the glorious light of the gospel, and she is never, ever the same. Her life changes from that moment on. We're told she goes back into the town, forgetting about her reputation. She tells everyone that they need to drop everything they're doing in common. Listen to this man. She, by nature of her new birth, wants everyone else to drink of this water. She wants everyone else to see this glorious light. She cannot help but to gush as she goes forth with a new, invigorated purpose for her life. Of course, we're told the town is intrigued and many come through the unlikely testimony of this unlikely missionary to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to trust in Jesus Christ and his word by God giving faith. Another broken vessel. Another cracked pot shining forth, reflecting, radiating the glorious light of the gospel in spite of their cracks. What do you see? 
Are you too familiar with this story? This is an amazing testimony of the power of God to change dark lives and fill them with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to see it. Look at what she does. Right? She doesn't immediately get religious and figure out a way that she can gather the most people into one place, astound them with her eloquence, or even her change of heart. She simply goes forth from that place shouting the glory of the gospel because having become a recipient of grace herself, she can do nothing less. Having been shown compassion, considering her own brokenness, She's compassionate to those who are broken like she is. Having died to herself, she wants others to see the wonderful life that is given in Jesus Christ. Do you see it? God does not first go to the synagogue in Jerusalem. He doesn't go there and praise the Pharisees for their clean and pretty and holy lives and tell them the good news that he came to save them because of all their hard work. He goes to the sinner drowning in her sin in her detestable reality in a hated and despised land and he mercifully says, I see your struggle. I know exactly who and what you are. And you know what? I love you. And I give of myself for you. And I claim you as my own precious thing. I love you enough, despite who we both know that you really are, and I'm going to give my life so that you may be free from this brokenness, from your filthiness, for eternity. I'm going to take the punishment that you know that you've earned. And I'm going to give you life eternally with me and my kingdom. I'm going to purchase your freedom with my blood. When I make you free, you're going to be free for eternity. Beloved, does it make your heart sing this morning? This message of good news is the reason that you and I get up in the morning. At least I hope it is. The message of good news is our motivation to go on to do it with joy and, and, and a very real contentment in life. It should be the reason that we all got out of bed this morning on a Sunday morning and chose to come to this church to join with our brothers and sisters in Christ to lift up our voices together as one in praise and adoration to a God that loves us despite our filthiness. A God who sees beyond our ridiculous masks. It's why we're here. And what do we do with this life-changing message? We immediately go inward and we attempt to repay grace. Which, of course, we can't do. We spend our time trying to put our heads together to figure out which method is the most effective, which method will bring the highest yield, because then when God sees the crowds that we have amassed, God will be pleased with us. It must be, right? 
mist for the, the forest for the trees and we think, I need to repay this mercy, so which message brings about the highest yield for God? We get busy forming committees. We spend our time as church folk sitting around with other church folk putting off what ought to naturally be pouring out of our minds. And we do it all the time in Reformed churches. I'm not attacking anyone else. This is for us to We talk about the need to evangelize. We even pray that God would show us who it is that we should be speaking to and we stay tucked away in our own sheltered, safe little world that we've created all around us and we're content to spend all of our time with those more acceptable people in this life. Those who would never be mistaken for dirty ones, for misfits, for losers, for drunkards, drunken people. We stay safe and pray. Is this what Jesus did? Did he stay safe? Did he spend his time on earth congratulating those who were so good at hiding the appearance that they were naturally sick? went into the darkest of the trenches and he spread the light in the darkest recesses of people's lives. He went to the vilest of sinners and he offered them the blessing of having their sin exposed so that he could show them their need to be healed and give them the remedy provided in his body. Jesus had dirty hands. He didn't spend his time looking for those who were already close enough to the kingdom of we love to share the gospel with those we think might be receptive to it and who probably will not react in too much opposition to it who would you know, be likely to cause trouble. We, we, we don't want to go there. We stay clean and we keep things nice and easy. We have short memories. Don't we? Maybe we ought to think back if we're able to when it was that our own eyes that so desperately needed to be opened up to the glorious good, good news of the gospel were opened. Do you remember that time when God, through his powerful, precious spirit, put his finger on your sin and mercifully opened your eyes to the glory of the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ? Listen, I want to tell you what I do. I remember what it was like. I remember a day. Every time I see my sin, how far I am away from my own righteousness, and it always makes me grateful to Jesus. Even at my worst. I've told this story many times, but I'll never forget the time in my life when God so mercifully condescended me in order to show me the depths of my own sin and drive me with the loving arms of Jesus. I was 20 years old, married, already had my first child on the way, and I was an absolute, complete pagan in every sense of the word. I didn't like God, and I didn't like his people. And my wife's parents, who I thank God for every day of my life, 
wanted to take me and Bianca to something called the Praise Gathering in Indianapolis. I've told you about it before. We'd only been married for a week. I didn't want to go. No desire to go. I can remember thinking, my friends are going to just ridicule me to death. To death if they find out that I'm going to hang out with a bunch of holy rovers for an entire week. No desire to didn't like to be around Christians. To me, they were all hypocrites, phonies, people who had had their fun and decided to tighten up their lives a little bit and hid behind a mask of religion. It seemed like a miserable existence. Bianca and I were flat broke. We had zero dollars to our name. We had celebrated our wedding on a Friday night, and we both were back at work Monday morning inside. So the idea of a free weekend getaway did appeal to me, and so I eventually gave in. So we arrived, and my father-in-law hands me an envelope that had a bunch of tickets in it, as well as a program for the weekend. The tickets he had hand-picked for us, they were seminars that he thought that we might like to go to. So I flipped through them. I was completely uninterested, and I set the tickets aside, and I began to flip through the program until something caught my eye. And it was the name Adolf Coors IV. It jumped out at me from the page, and so I stopped to read more. How is this guy in this book? You see, I didn't know anything about religion, but I knew exactly who Adolf Coors the was. He was the heir to the Coors Brewery fortune. For some reason, he had walked away entirely from the family business, and now was coming to speak at places like this crazy. I instantly knew that I wanted to go, and I needed to hear why this fool would ever do something. So I told my father-in-law that he could keep the rest of the tickets, but that was the one I wanted to go to. And he said, oh, man, I wish I knew that. You've got to have a ticket to get in. You can't go. I don't have a ticket that's already filled up. And I said, you know, I don't really care about the ticket. I told Bianca, I'm going to go early and just sneak in and sit in the front row. And surely these Christian people are not going to throw me out. So that's what I did. Went in before they even started taking tickets. And I grabbed a seat, and no one said a word to me. Adolf Coors came out that night and through a simple testimony of his life and his own encounter with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, dealing with his anger and his rage, giving him life in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God came upon me, and I was instantly aware of exactly what I truly was. Wretched sin and desperate need. Mr. Coors shared the gospel that night, and I can tell you it was music to my ears. I've never heard it. The course of my life, at least as I could perceive it at the time, I knew it was going to be drastically changed. Because one man was content to leave behind the clean and pretty cares of this safe, comfortable world speak about the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ to a wicked, idolatrous sinner. I want to tell you something. He didn't follow any methodology. There was no <clears throat> He simply told me the truth. And the Holy Spirit, through the powerful word of God, turned my eyes to Jesus Christ. And seeing that life sent my life in another direction entirely. A room full of was probably mostly church people looking to have a nice weekend together. 
this man through the Spirit of God reached out to the sick one. It might happen to be there. I thank God every day for using that man to show me Jesus. He didn't consider a mocker like me to be beyond the reach of God's mercy. He was faithful to the word of God and told me the good news about Jesus Christ. And as a result, I've spent 28 years of my life, 29 years telling everyone and anyone about this life because I still remember the reality of the darkness of my life. The emptiness of my own tiny little kingdom of one. The desperation of it. I don't want anyone anyone to ever live and that I don't have an enemy that I hate enough to leave them in that state of life for the rest of their lives. What about you, beloved? Do you remember that darkness? Are you really content to stay safely tucked away among those who are not hostile towards your message? Is it really okay to just live in that way? Do you have any Samaritans in your life that are just really too detestable to be worthy to Are there groups of people that you will not approach with the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died to set them free and give them eternal life and purpose in the here and now? We should all be on our faces before God every single day, thanking Him for the mercy that He shows us the testimony. We should be on our faces before God every day, thanking Him for the mercy that He showed to the testable people like you and I. That's what we are in our sin. Are we willing to get our hands to Beloved, I know this is different from most of my sermons, but I want to tell you this because I hope for the sake of people like me that we will get our hands up. I hope that we leave the church today knowing that that belligerent, foul-mouthed, obnoxious guy at work that we love to hate needs to see dark, the darkness of his life pierced by the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kid at school that everyone knows is just pure evil needs to hear the gospel. The family member that we just know will one day have to pay for his or her arrogance needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ every day of our lives. Let's all agree together that the only method that really matters is that we shout it from the rooftops because we cannot help but to let the world know that there is a light that will pierce the darkness forever. And because of it, we will gladly speak of what we were and what the precious Word of God promises we are. We are the beloved in Christ by faith, faith that God gives United in Him, we're covered with His perfection, His righteousness, His mercy. Beloved, if that's something that you think ought to be kept to yourself, then you have every reason in the world to question whether or not you've seen this light that's being revealed to you in the pages of Scripture. Because this light shines upon your sin and pushes you into the arms of Jesus.
if you've seen. That singing praises to God this morning is much more than your duty. It is your highest.